Well, we're continuing our series through the book of 2 Samuel, and uh, we're going to finish here in the next few weeks. But let me begin. We're going to be in chapter 19, 20, and 21 this morning. Let me ask, uh, what if you were a ruler and you were known as a good guy, a good ruler, but you didn't take any action against the bad guys? What does it mean to say that you oppose murder, but then you refuse to punish those that commit murder? What does it even mean to bear the responsibility to punish? For that matter, does anyone bear the full responsibility to punish others? It was said during the reign of one Roman emperor, it is indeed bad to live under a prince with whom nothing is permitted, but much worse to live under one by whom everything is allowed. As Christians, we believe all authority on earth is ultimately established by God himself. He decided this. And so as we will look at, Lord willing, next week, David, King David's words in 2 Samuel 23 says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David's talking about authority there and the goodness of authority. And part of that good authority then must be the responsibility to enforce the parts that we understand to be good. And the responsibility to punish those things that are evil ultimately belongs to God. He alone is completely able to fulfill that perfectly. But in limited ways, God shares that authority with with us, with parents, with judges, public officials, even elders and pastors anyone who's been entrusted with some sort of authority. So what happens when we do something bad in our world? Well, if you're a child here, most likely your parents will punish you for for what you have done bad. If we're adults, though, maybe that punishment would come from someone else, like an employer or the police. Of course, the world would argue that, that no one is truly able to know right from wrong, Right and wrong are are mere social constructs, relationships to power, they say. Moral and immoral are just customs that may or may not be enforced. But really, the primary way of thinking today is that we can sin and we can get away with it. But according to the Bible, is that actually true? Does God really ignore sin and ignore the sinner? Has God ignored your sin this morning? Perhaps you've come this morning and think that's true. God, he, he has ignored it, that he's not really interested in it. God is more powerful, more knowledgeable, and more righteous than any authority here on earth. God knows who and what deserves punishment for sin. And as we read the Bible, we come to realize that God will not leave all the wrong to sort it out by itself. He won't do that. So here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust of this morning's sermon. One short sentence. When our king returns, he will make all things right. When our king returns, he will make all things right. And there's three points. I love three-point sermons. I don't know if you guys do. Do you follow the pattern there? It just just flows when I'm sitting in the office. So three points. The mercy of the king, the rebellion of fools, the consequences of sin. And so that's going to follow these chapters, 19, 20, and 21. 
And so you'll be helped by having a Bible open. If you don't have one, there's one in the, in the seats in front of you. Please take that and open it up. I don't have a page number, but it's 2 Samuel 19. You can find it there. Even don't feel ashamed opening the front of the Bible to find out where the book is. No shame whatsoever. Uh, we'll be in chapter 19 of 2 Samuel. And the first point is the mercy of the king. When we come to this chapter, we're going to skip over a few verses because we looked at it last week. But when we come to verse 9 of chapter 19, Absalom is dead. Absalom was was King David's son and revolted against him and they, and they chased him eventually and Joab killed him. And, and, and what we find out is every man has fled to his own home and, and now a dilemma rises. And when people are in a dilemma, they usually bicker and they usually argue. And that's what we find in verse 9. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So they offended their king in their rebellion and and sin of defying him and going with Absalom. So, So what can they do now to regain the trust of David? He's the one left, okay? What can they do to make things right? What do we do when we've done something wrong? Can we humble ourselves when we know we're in the wrong? See, the indecision of the people here gives us some insight to our own trouble that we have in admitting our sin to God. Right? We, we, we struggle with that. But what we find out quickly here in this story is that David doesn't wait for him. David doesn't wait for them to come. He actually takes the initiative. They're, they're stuck arguing, but David's going to move towards them. Look at verse 11. And King David sent his message to Zadok and Abathar, the priests say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring the, back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you're not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to Jordan, to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. What we learn from that, I believe, is, is another affirmation that we need God to initiate with us if we're ever going to come in repentance and in faith. The good news of God coming to Lost Center is exemplified here and shown in some ways of David going to Judah. David was showing unmerited grace by going to his people and seeking to be reconciled with them. And isn't this Christmas? And I know, I'm not, I'm not anti-gifts or decorating, okay, but, but the point of Christmas is God coming from heaven to us. Who initiated that? If it was up to us, we would say, stay there. But God initiated to come down low. The infinite come as infant. That's what we celebrate. That's what we're going to sing about. That's what we sang about this morning. It's God coming down to live with man. Emmanuel with us. God came to us. He is the one that initiated And David wasn't the only one going to them. He was actually living out verses that we find in Colossians 3, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. David is forgiving. David is displaying for us what God has done for the sinner who has broken his law, who is trapped in sin, and then who comes by faith for forgiveness. David is displaying that in some ways. 
you know, us having alienated ourselves from God by breaking his law, we are without any recourse in saving ourselves. But through Jesus Christ and his initiating saving work, God took the first step toward us because we would have never gone to him. We would have stayed in our sin. We would have stayed where we're at and praise God for his magnificent gospel that saves us. Amen? And yet, even after saving us, even after saving us, even after walking with the Lord, we can still stray, right? We are still human, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, we sing. We can all be infatuated with an Absalom in this world and foolishly pursue their loyalty and favor. And yet God, towards the Christian, does not wash his hands of us. He, he totally be, would be justified to do that, right? He would be justified, but, but mercy, his mercy draws us back to himself, forgives us, restores us in fellowship with him. And, and God, our God, is beyond gracious and merciful to the wayward sinner. And, and we see Israel's king here, David, doing the same for his people. Well, it continues. So look at verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharum, hurried down hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty. Remember how your servant did wrong in the day my Lord left, the, the Lord, the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord and king. Now, we didn't cover this a couple weeks ago because we had a large section, but if you go back, just take your Bible and go back just a couple chapters to chapter 16, we can read what Shimei did. It wasn't great. Chapter 16, verse 5, just a couple of verses here, 5, 6, and 7. This is when David is fleeing, okay? Absalom is in and, and, and chasing him, and David's leaving Jerusalem. And this is Shimei, verse king. When King David came to Barum, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the same one here that we just read in 19. And as it came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. So now you know what he's seeking for forgiveness, right? Not a great thing to do. I don't know when the last time you threw stones at someone and cursed them. But, but Shemai comes, recognizes now he had done wrong. If we come back to, to verse, or chapter 19, he, he seems to have had a change of heart. David's coming back as the victor. Absalom's dead. Shemai, I think, wanted Absalom, but that didn't work out. Now David is here, and what, what will David do? Chapter 19 now, verse 21. Abishai, the son of Zeruai, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zerai, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this, this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. David was within his rights to execute him. 
but he shows him mercy instead. Mercy comes to those who admit their sin. That's what we learn here. Mercy comes for those who know that they have done wrong and they seek forgiveness of the king. That's Shimei here. King David here was, was set, it seems, to show mercy to, to this people, to forgive and to reconcile them. Well, there's more. Verse 24. My favorite name is right here in verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safely. If we go back to chapter 16, and you don't have to go back there, right right before the verses I read of Shimei cursing David, the people are fleeing Jerusalem, we find in that passage in 16... Zibai, the servant of Meshebopheth, coming to David, and when David asks where his master is, Ziba says to the king, behold, his, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my, of my father. So Ziba's quoting his master, Meshebopheth. Man, I love that name. Anyone going to name their son that? You should consider it. It, it seems from, from Ziba we learn that Meshebopheth had abandoned David. But when we come to chapter 19, he's coming before the king. And he has a different story. Look at verse 25. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why, why, he's asking now, what, what happened? Why did you not go with me, Meshibotheth? And he answered, my lord, oh my king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to me, so it said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And it it seems like Ziba had in fact slandered his master. And, And then he took off. He left him. You know, he's a cripple. He couldn't take care of himself. And he left him and then spoke to the king like he's against you. But in David's point of view at this point, he doesn't know which, which is right. You know, it's, it's, it's hearing both sides. Who's telling the truth? And so verse 29, the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Okay? I don't know what, who's right. I'm not sure who's telling the truth. So we're just going to divide it. We're going we're to let it happen. You're not going to die. He's not going to die. We're going to divide it. And then verse 30, And Meshibotheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. Who's telling the truth? You can answer. I want you to say the name. Yeah, that's right. Who? Yeah. He, he, he just wants his king. You know, it reminds me, I, I read this in the commentary, but it reminds me of Solomon later, right, in his reign, where two women come after a baby, and, and, and he just says, well, we're going to cut the baby in half, and one woman was like, yeah, yeah, oh, go ahead. And the other one's like, oh, no. The real mother was like, absolutely not. Let her have it. Maybe Solomon was here, you know. Maybe he was old enough to see David do this, and that's where he learned it. But asking in some way, you know, the split, and, and he, he doesn't want it because that's not what he's here for. If you remember, if you go back 
And, and remember the story of David bringing him to the, that was so overwhelming to him of being accepted by the king. That's all he desired. You know, and his response, I think, is, is, is true. Yeah, he can just have it. I, I, I don't need it. I have my king. And, and in all this, David is showing mercy. You know, we can learn some lessons here in this chapter of David. Jesus would teach us in the Gospels that we're to ask for forgiveness for our own sins and to forgive others. So if David, reflecting on his own life, could be forgiven of his incredible, wicked sin with Bathsheba and the killing and the murdering of Uriah, he could be merciful and forgiving of Shimei and Ziba and Mephibosheth. He, he could show that, right? Friends, forgiven people forgive people. That, that's the characteristic of being a Christian. And if you're struggling, and I'm not trying to discount sin that's been done against you, but if you're struggling to forgive, I think you have some questions to ask yourself. I think you need to run to the gospel again. Run to what Christ has done. Reflect on who you are before God. Because forgiven people before God forgive others. Now, there is obviously much more in this conversation of those asking for forgiveness, recognizing their sin, coming and seeking that. But if we're withholding it, we have questions to ask ourselves. And yet we can just spend our time pondering the magnificent grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus who forgave us, the one who never sinned, who never did anything wrong, and yet forgives sinners like us. Our King has been merciful to those who truly don't deserve it. We are like Shimei, who, who have cursed God. We've cursed him. We've thrown stones at him because we think we know better. And yet God in his goodness and his mercy has come to us and has forgiven us when we respond in faith towards him. We are Ziba who have told half-truths to, to try to get out of responsibility, and, and yet God is patient and gracious with us. So, first, we've seen the mercy of the king. Second, we see the rebellion of fools. And that's in chapter 20. You'll find out we're not going to cover every single verse here this morning, because if we were, it would be a long sermon. Rebellion of fuel, fools. Sin has a way of trailing with us. Uh, the sin of David and Bathsheba, David with Bathsheba, along with the sin of uh, Amnon and, and Tamar, leads to the revolt of Absalom. And the rest that we read of David in chapter 7 is now, now just evaporated. It's gone. Remember chapter 7? That was a long time ago, right? David was at rest. It, that's gone. David would never again experience rest from all sides. Sin does that. Sin causes us to be unsettled and unsatisfied and in conflict. David's kingdom had survived not because of David, but because of God's faithfulness to his covenant. And yet it seems like the victory that David is experiencing is going to be short-lived. More rebellion, more sin, more dysfunction is what we're going to see in chapter 20. Look at verse 1. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Berchiah, a Benjamite. Just pause right there. It's never a good sign to be... Uh, counted in the Bible as a worthless person. But the Bible is 
brutally honest for those who reject their king. And he said, and he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. So he's rising up against them. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man of his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Berkai, Berkri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So the, so the men of Judah, we saw, come back to King David, but the men of Israel are going to reject him again and are going to go with Sheba here. Sheba was from Benjamin, uh, King Saul's tribe, and probably had some affinity to, to the old regime, to the old king. But this is getting old, isn't it, as we read this book? You know, we've had this discussion, I think, uh, 50, 60 times already as we've gone through this book. God selects a king, the people submit to that king, but then some rebel, and some want their own way, some fight against God and, and the authority that God gives. And, and rightful authority seems to go right down the tube. But I wonder, has anything really changed? You know, if we think through 2 Samuel then, has anything changed since then? Oh, we are living in a culture right now where authority is bad. It seems like everyone hates authority. I mean, authority is great when you're the one in authority. When you've, when you've gotten that position, I mean, it's, now I'm going to talk about it. But when you're required to submit to someone else who's in authority, and they do things or say things that you don't like, authority's bad. And you rebel. You, you push back. You can't tell me what to do. You think... You know what it's like to lead, but no one's asked you. And, and, and I, I wonder if there are Shebas in the church today. I, I wonder if there are Shebas in our church. They rebel against rightful, God-given authority, or even more accurately, they never place themselves under any authority in the church. And they want to go their own way. They want to call their own shots. And are they really better off? If you never proactively place yourself under authority, are you spiritually in a better position? Have any, any verses in the scriptures to support that? You know, every single Christian has to deal with Hebrews thirteen seventeen. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those as leaders who will give an account. That means they will stand before God as elders and pastors and give an account of the souls that they've been entrusted to them. And then it says, as you submit to them, do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Who are your spiritual leaders? You have to answer this from this verse. And how are you submitting to them? Don't be fooled, friends. Rejecting God-given authority isn't looked kindly upon by God. God established authority. It was his idea. God established the role of an elder, a pastor. It was his idea. It is a high calling to be an elder pastor. There are nights where I don't sleep well at all because of the souls, people, that have been entrusted to me along with the rest of the team of elders. But Hebrews 13, 17 needs to be answered. 
by, by me as, a, as an elder. Who am I giving account for? Who, who, who is it at the, at the final day am I going to stand before God and give an account for? And Hebrews 13, 17 needs to be answered by you. Who is the leader you should submit to? Is it every pastor? Is it every elder? That seems really difficult. You need to think through these things as a Christian. Well, that was a side step, but I think it's necessary because we're going to get to this here, especially with Joab. But before we get to Joab, the narrator pauses in chapter 20 and he takes a short break to discuss something that's important. Look at verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but, not, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Now this is not filler information. There's something for us to see and understand, and it's not necessarily encouraging. We know from the prior chapters that, that Absalom, when he was rebelling and he was trying to establish himself as king, he went into the concubines. He slept with them. And that was actually a fulfillment of what God's word said in chapter 12, that what happened as a result of David's sin. And the judgment that would come, it was promised by God and, and, and came. And now the, the misery of these women has come about all because of David's sin. David would provide for them materially, but he would have nothing more to do with them. They would pass the remaining days as de facto widows. All the joy and brightness was taken out of their lives, and personal freedom was taken from them as well. They were locked away at no fault of their own, probably cursing the day that they ever entered into the palace. See, the consequences of sin is sad for others to bear also. We know Christians who feel who know what it feels like to have their lives turned to gray simply because of the sin of others done to them. And yet, God will not leave them eternally. He promises to wipe every tear away and to make all things new. But these ladies in the text here, they will live the remaining of their days alone. The consequences of their sin are hard. As we move to verse 4, David is still dealing with his inability to deal with the sin of others. David had failed to reign in his ruthless nephew Joab in all the prior years. On the outside, it seemed like Joab was loyal to David in his kingdom, but as we will see, he refuses to, to place himself under David's authority. We saw this first when he killed Abner in cold blood, and we saw his insubordination when he killed David's son Absalom after receiving strict orders to preserve his life. And, and as we read earlier, David effectively has moved on from Joab. He's replaced Joab with uh, Amasa. So he says in verse 4 here, chapter 20, verse 4, the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba the son of Berkai, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortify cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Carathites, and the Parathites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Berchai. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. 
Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it with, was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on its high, and as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, it is well with you, my brother. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Just so you know, First and Second Samuel would be a rated R movie. Gruesome stuff. And Joab here, the thug, really, wouldn't let himself be replaced by anyone. Even if David is the one doing the replacing, Joab's not going to let that happen. As always, for Joab, the end justified the means. Just put Amasa here on the long list of people that were killed at the hand of Joab. Abner and, and Uriah, for that matter, right? And Absalom, now Amasa. David's public demotion of Joab was publicly rescinded by the revenge and savage tactics of Joab here, who refused to step down and to let another take his place. And, and, and what we find out is David, again, refuses to step in and do anything about Joab. Now, Joab doesn't seek to revolt like Sheba does here, and gathering up Israel, or he doesn't try to take the throne like Absalom does. And see, Joab is intensely loyal and yet completely uncontrollable. He doesn't take the kingship, but he won't submit to the king. His, his loyalty is outward, but inwardly he's, he's only loyal to one person, himself. And David, again, refuses to deal with Joab. What we find out as we read the end of 2 Samuel and into 1 Kings is David just kicks the can down the street. He's not going to deal with Joab. And actually, 1 Kings 2, who deals with Joab, Joab but his son? I'm not going to deal with this problem. He'll take care of it. And, and, and Sheba, well, it looks like he's going to get away now. He's running in his rebellion. He's going to take off. He's, going to, he's, he's, he's raised up Israel. He's going to try to overturn this. And he takes off, except for one wise woman who calls out the Joab. Joab has now caught them, as we see in verse 15. He's surrounded the city where the woman lives. They've built up a siege around the city. And, and really, to build up a siege means that no supplies are going in and none are coming out. And so this wise woman steps up to confront Joab because he's taking charge now, and she's seeking peace. And Joab informs her that Sheba, he's made it inside the city. And, and he says, essentially, if you turn him over, we'll leave. And then look at her response. Look at verse 21, chapter 20, verse 21. I know we've skipped ahead there. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. This is a woman who gets things done. The woman went to all the people, verse 22, in her wisdom. So she hears what Joab says, says, I will take care of this because their city is suffering. She cares about the city enough to go out and risk herself. And she goes back to the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Berchai, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city every man to his home and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. This wise woman effectively saves her city by convincing the townspeople to give up Sheba and has him killed and has his head thrown over the wall. 
Joab again secures David's kingdom. But Joab does it his way. He will not submit to the king. His heart is set on serving himself and what he desires instead of serving at the pleasure of his king. David's way for for Joab doesn't seem expedient. It doesn't seem wise. So Joab always is going to step up and he's going to finish it the way he thinks it needs to be done. And, And really his role was to subvert the king by any means necessary. I know better. I know God's placed him in authority over me, but I am going to subvert him to do what I want. We see the role that Joab has played all throughout this book in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom primarily of David. But what role are you playing in God's family, the church? Can I ask, are you easy as a member to be shepherded by the elders? Is it a joy for us to shepherd you or is it, as Hebrews said, groaning? Sleepless nights. Or even, let's say you're not a member, you have not even made yourself available to be shepherded here. Even more difficult for us as elders. Are you able to submit under right and godly spiritual authority? Or are you stubborn and unwilling to be guided by anyone like Joab? More importantly than that, more importantly than just us here at the church, are you able to submit yourself under God? Usually those things are, are a symptom of something more. You know, if, if, if we are, are going to spurn all authority in our culture here, it, it could be possibly a symptom of how you submit under God. You need to ask, I don't know that answer. You need to ask that question. Because there's, there's such a thing as acknowledging the king's sovereignty over your life and completely disregarding his will for your life. Uh, lip service. Yeah, I, I submit to him, but when it comes down to how I'm going to live, I'm going to do what I want to do. Friends, that's not submission to God. And the end is never pleasant for those who refuse to submit themselves under God's authority. It always ends up in ruin. It always ends up in in destruction of life. Friends, it's always better to submit ourselves under God. He knows what's best for us. He's the one that set us up. He's the one that made us. So it's always better to submit under him. So chapter 20 is really this rebellion of fools, and, and the question is, are, are we one of those? Last is the consequences of sin. We come to chapter 21 now. Famine has, has struck the land, as we will read, and, and there's usually a reason for it, as we see in the Old Testament, at least in the Bible, we can see it. Leviticus 26 talks about it, Deuteronomy 28. It shows us that the Lord sends famine to his land as a revol- re- result of the rebellion of people. So look at chapter 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. That's a good thing right there, by the way, recognize. There's something going on, and I don't know, maybe that's not our reflex, but he goes to God first. When there's trouble, he goes to God first, right? And then the Lord answers. He says, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibbonites to death. 
So let's pause there. The sins that he is mentioning here is not listed in 1 Samuel. We don't know any more details other than what's here in chapter 21. We know Saul, though, was a misguided leader who always seemed to step outside of the boundaries set by God. And so it seems possible that he, he was showing his devotedness to Israel and he kills this ethnic minority to free up more land for the people of God. But God had set aside the Gibeonites. They were not to be touched. If you read the book of Joshua, we find out why. When God's people were at war, the Gibeonites, they did something bad. They deceived God's people, Israel, into thinking that they were from another land. And the Israelites covenanted with them. And it was to preserve them. And, and with them, when they preserved them in keeping with the permission that God had given to Israel to enter into treaties with people outside of the land of Canaan. So the Gibeonites, they're not innocent in this way, right? They came and they deceived God's people, but God's people covenanted with them. And in God's vantage point, that was done. The, the Gibeonites didn't deserve to live, but they received grace from God, and they were to be preserved. God said, don't touch them. This grace would later bear even more fruit because the Gibeonites were, were fully assimilated into Israel. They were seen there in Nehemiah as helping build the walls. Anyways, Saul, and what, what we find out from this is Saul murdered the Gibeonites, many of them. And so David seeks the Lord, and the Lord answers. And I love that. God doesn't keep him in the dark. He doesn't just say, figure it out yourself. God's not that way. He's not cruel. He reveals guilt where it's there so that guilt can be dealt with and atoned for. Guilt isn't there to torment us, but to draw us to God and to be dealt with. And David is, is dealing with this now. And it's, it's really the guilt of Saul. And the following verses are, are really some of the most difficult to read. Verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to, to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither it is for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Verse 8, the king took two sons of Rizpah, and then the five sons of Merab, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I really struggled as I was reading this this week. You know, when we read verses like this, we just need to pause and consider our God. God's justice is unforgetting and unrelenting. Time may heal all wounds, but not with God. Even though years had passed, 
God had not forgotten of the sin that Saul had committed. There, there is no statute of limitations with God's justice to deal with sin. People may forget past sins that were never confessed, but God will never forget. And His perfect justice will be meted out. Sin must be dealt with. It cannot be swept under the rug. We also see that God's temporal punishments have an instructive nature to them for God's people. See, God was teaching His people that they're to keep His promises. They're to keep His covenant. They're to be faithful. Furthermore, we see God's patience in dealing with His people. But patience, friends, is designed to produce repentance not neglect. If you're not a Christian here this morning, think back of how many opportunities God has given you to heed his warnings. How many opportunities do you think he will give you to hear and to rightly respond to his word? God is surely gracious to us in Christ. We know that from the Bible, but we must never presume upon his grace. How, how dare we think we can safely ignore God, assuming that we can just have tomorrow or next week. When we think this way, friends, when we put this off, we deceive ourselves. James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The fact that God hasn't judged you for some known sin doesn't argue for you to continue in it, but it's to show you your need to repent and to find cleansing grace from our Lord. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should repent of your sins of trusting in yourself to be your own Savior, to be your own King, and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. He will save. That's the only way to be confident that your sins are forgiven. Do you have any other solution for your sin? Have you thought of anything else that you possibly could do with your sin? Is there any way that you can stand before a holy God in your sin? Friend, I've read the Bible, and the only way is Jesus Christ. And what a magnificent way he's given us. One that we don't deserve. And we can place our faith in him. And because of his righteousness, takes care of our sin. Jesus took our sins on himself on the cross. And so I would encourage you, friend, to turn to him in faith this morning. To trust in him alone. I recognize that chapter 21 is, is difficult. It puzzles the, the Western contemporary mind. You know, I think, why couldn't they just talk? You know, why couldn't they just get a mediator here? But I, I'm thinking that in a human way, you know, that, that, that all of this can just be, that sin somehow can just be dealt with by just talking it through. But that's not what the Bible says. You know, God 
had mercifully brought a famine to direct David to ask what God was doing. And now God is going to deal with Saul's sin. And atonement would happen for Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. Seven men, I'm assuming seven because it's a perfect number, died from Saul's house and would die in Saul's place. The Lord's wrath must be appeased towards sin, satisfied. The theological term is propitiated. The curse of the covenant, and there was a curse that would happen if you broke covenant. It would need to be dealt with, and it would be dealt with God's way. We read this in verse 8. The king took two sons of Rizpah and five sons of Merab, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first day of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then look down at verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. These are her sons, two of them. Verse 11, when David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who'd stolen them from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hanged them on the day of Philistines, kill, killed Saul and Gibeah, Gilboa, excuse me. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin, and Zelah, the tomb of Kish's father, and they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. As we think through the scene, Rizpah, one of Saul's concubines, sits heart-wrenchingly at the feet of her slain sons. And the point of it is for her to sit there to keep vultures from the sky or beasts from the ground to mutilate the flesh of her boys. She's a mother. She loved her sons. You know, if we allow our minds to spend too much time here, we we begin to recoil back in horror. the stench in sight of decay. Perhaps the shocking truth from this story can pull us back into the truth that we need to remember this morning is that atonement is bloody and it's a smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavy wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. Atonement is never nice and pretty. It's always gruesome. We need to see that here, I think. There is no neat and tidy application for chapter 21. I think we need to see the gruesomeness of atonement. Or, if not, we begin to fall in this trap to think about atonement as some abstract doctrine that we can teach on here on Sundays, just nice and neat, some little definition, 
and theology discussed in the, in the comfort of our seats with coffee in hand, and we forget the bloodiness of what atonement is. And then we, just, we can just set it aside. We can move on with lunch and football today. You know, Christmas is just a few weeks away. And we celebrate Christmas because God came low. He came as a baby. But friends, the baby came to grow into a man and to die an atoning death for us. And it wasn't some quick and clean death. Christ's atoning work on the cross was gruesome. It was mess and gore. It was whore. And it was because of our sin. You know, I have no application for 21. I think we just need to sit and take it in. And think of the sights of a mom sitting at the feet of her two sons who were killed as an atonement for sin. And the smells that she would experience in this, in this vigil. It's solemn. And all this, friends, is the result of sin. Of the breaking of a covenant with God. God is serious about sin. And I know we live in a world that just kind of pushes it aside. God doesn't. Sin takes us much farther than we really want to go, and its reach is greater than we could ever imagine. The sins of both Saul and David are like stones that are thrown into a pond, and the beginning splash into the water causes big ripples, but they don't stop. Those ripples move from the middle of the pond outward to the shore and then back to the middle and then back out, causing collisions along the way. See, the consequences for sin are not short-lived. This is the nature of sin in our lives. And so no one can fully calculate the full effect of our sin and the consequences for our sin. And it's seen right here in chapter 21. Saul's sin is felt many years later, and it impacts his distant relatives. The death of his family members seemed to come out of nowhere, and it seems to be the final nail in the coffin of the legacy of Saul. Saul's continual refusal to submit himself under God caused innumerable damage to himself and to his immediate family. But it didn't stop there. No, his grandsons would pay the price for his sin. Our, our children, our grandchildren might not literally die for our sins, but they will reap the consequences for our sins and how we live our lives. Especially if we live our lives in complete rebellion of God. But it's not just Saul. We're just picking on him. It's David. 
David will suffer. David has suffered. His sin with Bathsheba has caused already so much damage and death, but it carries on to the next. It causes pain and suffering for his people. It causes bloodshed and dysfunction for the kingdom. It carries on to his children. It carries on to his grandchildren too. See, friend, sin takes you farther than you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay and costs you more than you want to pay. And so this chapter is really a warning for us. As as Christians, we rejoice in that God took away the eternal consequences of our rebellion against God, but earthly consequences can still ripple in our lives. The stain of sin in our souls has been washed clean, praise God, but the repercussion of our sin can continue in our life. And and this chapter is a warning to us. Friends, it's a warning to you if you came in this morning continuing in a life of sin to turn from your practice of sin as God brings it to your attention this morning and find your refuge and forgiveness in God alone. He took the consequences of our sin upon the cross. And and we want to ponder that as we end here this morning. We're going to partake together of the Lord's Supper. When we come to the the table of the Lord's Supper, we we come to remember the atonement of our sins by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have grown comfortable with Golgotha, chapter 21 of 2 Samuel just shocks us back into the the realness of sin, of atonement. What Christ suffered for us on the cross was bloody and smelly and horrific. Jesus dying for our sin was not nice and not neat. It was horrific and hard. It It was not quaint and peaceful. It was lonely and exhausting. And I believe the reason why the narrator tells us this story in 2 Samuel 21 is for us to sit and to be solemn over our sin. So what happens when we partake of this? Maybe you've asked that. What This bread and juice, this meal really is what Paul calls it in, in 1 Corinthians. It means that our, our, we, we partake of it to, to realize that our sins are shown for what they really are before a holy God. And our hearts as Christians burn within us for love for Christ. We're we're reminded of all that he suffered for us on the cross. Our faith in Christ is strengthened as we take this meal together as as a covenant family. We remind ourselves of our covenant with one another and and our covenant with the Lord. And we not only hear with our ears as I preach the word and what he's done for us, but we also can see it. And we can hold it, and we can smell it, and we can taste it and touch it, the the tokens of of his suffering and death on our behalf. And Jesus is teaching us that just as bread and drink nourish our temporal life here, so his crucified body and poured out blood truly nourish our spiritual lives forever. The, The Lord's Supper, the communion meal, is very significant to the Christian and to the covenant family of God. And so I want to encourage the ushers now as they come 
And as they walk forward, I want to also let you know that this meal that we're going to partake is only for Christians. Because only Christians can understand the gospel. So if you're not a Christian and not faithfully connected to a church family, they're encouraging not not partake of this meal. Just observe us. If you have questions, come find me or another pastor this morning. We'd love to talk to you. But our men are going to hand out the communion elements this morning, and, and we're going to wait till everyone has it. Okay? We're going to do this together. And so I'm going to pray, and then they're going to hand it out. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die for us on the cross for our sins. And his body and his blood shed for us on the cross, and it redeems us from our sins and places us in the family of God. So may we remember that this morning as we, we have gathered together and eat May we remember what you've done for us this morning. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.